0: happy saturday everybody coming up on march 5th is the 250th anniversary of the boston massacre And back in December of 2013, we talked about the Boston Massacre and how Patriot propaganda shaped the way that it is remembered in the United States today. Toward the end of the episode, we mentioned a game meant for elementary and middle school kids about the massacre. Uh, That game does not seem to be online anymore, but the Massachusetts Historical Society still has a lot of primary sources online.
1: One of the things that we did want to note before we put this episode out again is that in the years since it originally aired, there have been numerous, really, high-profile incidents of law enforcement officers firing on and killing unarmed people of color, and also of a militarized police response to protests. That also happened before this episode came out, but it's been a lot more widely covered in the years since then. So if we were recording this episode today, that probably would have affected our approach to the topic and our demeanor in talking about it, which is a little jovial because some aspects of this were ridiculous. So enjoy. Enjoy.
0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hello and welcome to the podcast.
1: I am Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. And I think I may have been desensitized by living in today's world of spree killings and mass murders. Because when I hear the word massacre, uh, I think of of something like the Red Wedding in Game of Thrones. Right. Or maybe one of its real-world inspirations, which was the 1692 Massacre of Glencoe. And that's when soldiers under Archibald Campbell, who was the 10th Earl of Argyle, slaughtered 38 members of the MacDonald clan. So So you think of
0: something with high volume and pretty um, aggressive...
1: Wholesale killing of basically undefended people. Yeah. Uh... So the word massacre, just, it brings up way bloodier images than what really went down in our second most requested massacre topic. Uh, the first one being the massacre at Glencoe, which yeah. we just mentioned. That's the Boston Massacre, which at the time was known as the Bloody Massacre in King, in King Street. And massacre kind of makes it sound as though it was the wholesale slaughter of a bunch of innocent Bostonians who were just standing around minding their own business Which is not true at all. (laughs) (laughs) It was not at all like that. Uh, But there is definitely a reason why we call it the Boston Massacre and not the minor Boston kerfuffle with a few unfortunate casualties. And that reason is
0: propaganda. Uh, Maybe we should start a Facebook page to try to change it to the Boston (laughs) minor kerfuffle.
1: With a few unfortunate casualties. So, yeah, that's what we're going to talk about today. What actually happened during the Boston Massacre and why we call it a massacre today and not something else.
0: So we're going to talk about the propaganda aspect, but first we need to put a little context into the situation. Uh, So on June 29th of 1767, the British Parliament passed the Townsend Revenue Act with the purpose of raising 40,000 pounds per year to, quote, defray the charge of the administration of justice and the support of civil government. In other words, they needed to offset the British government's cost of running the colonies. And this put a tax on several really common items that were exported to the colonies from Britain.
1: Here's the actual list. I find this list delightful. (laughs) Uh, For every hundredweight averdupoise of crown, plate, flint, and white glass, four shillings and eight pence. For every hundredweight averdupoise of red lead, two shillings. For every hundredweight averdupoise of green glass... One shilling and two pence. For every hundredweight average poise of white lead, two shillings. For every hundredweight average poise of painter's colors, two shillings. For every pound weight average poise of tea, three pence. and for every ream of paper, usually called or known by the name of Atlas spine, 12 shilling. and average poise is basically the pounds and ounces weight system that uh, many of us still use today.
0: And if you are familiar in any way uh, with the U.S. on the subject of taxes, you can probably imagine how very popular this whole plan was. (laughs) Yes. Which is not at all. Right. And on top of that,
1: taxation of goods was already an extremely sore subject in the colonies. In 1765, Parliament had passed the Stamp Act, which was a tax on, quote, every skin or piece of vellum or parchment or sheet or piece of paper. And paper and vellum for different uses were subject to different rates of tax. So the Stamp Act was supposed to fund the defense of the American frontier, and the colonies objected to the whole idea of using a tax to raise money rather than to regulate commerce. And uh, the colonies were very concerned about the precedent that, that, that this set, that, you know, Britain could just say, hey, here have a tax now that we are going to use to raise lots of money. This, uh led to the colonists responding to the Stamp Acts with protests and violence. And consequently, Parliament repealed it in 1766. Although in basically the same breath, it also passed what was called the Declaratory Acts. And those more or less said, hey, Britain can pass laws for the colonies and the colonies have to follow them and too bad if you don't like it.
0: So just a couple of years behind the Stamp Act, which was so very wildly popular, Uh, the Townsend Act also went over poorly. So poorly, in fact, that the British government had to send regiments of regulars to Boston just to keep the peace. Customs officials were being harassed and threatened as a result of these taxes, and the governor wanted military help just to help restore order.
1: So the regulars, who became increasingly known as the Redcoats, started arriving on October 1st of 1768. So you may recall from our recent episode on the Hessians that deploying troops to the colonies from Britain was an extremely long and time-consuming task. So that is why, even though it had been quite a while since the act was passed, uh, many, many months later did the military show up to try to calm things down.
0: And uh, the people of Boston did not really like this one bit. Uh, On top of the principle of a military force just showing up to make them behave themselves... Soldiers were also raising the competition for jobs because they would sometimes take on additional work in their off hours to supplement their income, and they were willing to take less money because they also had their pay as a soldier. So, consequently, the citizens of Boston greeted the Redcoats with taunts and jeers
1: and a lot of fighting and spitting, and all in all, relationships between the troops and the city went extremely poorly for about 18 months before the tensions really started to rise in March of 1770. By this point, people were trying to get shopkeepers to stop selling imported products from Britain entirely and also vandalizing stores that did carry British products.
0: So in the days after the massacre, a packet of military depositions was sent back to England, which described the environment uh, this way from the British perspective. Whoever has conversed much with those who have been lately at Boston must know that the arrival of the king's troops at that town in 1768 was exceedingly disgustful to all that part of the people who call themselves the Sons of Liberty and deny the authority of the British Parliament to pass the late acts for imposing duties upon certain articles of trade imported into America." and who certainly form a great majority of the people in that town, though perhaps not of the persons of the best fortunes and most respectable characters in the place. Basically, the rabble are cranky.
1: (laughs) That was the British version of the story, (laughs) for sure. So, on March 5th, 1770, that's when the Boston Massacre took place. Captain John Goldfinch was walking down King Street when the wig maker's apprentice, whose name was Edward Garrick, hollered at him that he had not paid for his wig. Captain Goldfinch just ignored him. And uh, so Edward then repeated this accusation to other passersby in a similarly hollering fashion.
0: So Hugh White, who was the sentry on duty at the Customs House heard this commotion, and he told Edward that the captain, being a gentleman, would of course pay for anything he had bought. Edward, however, disbelieved that there were any
1: gentlemen among the redcoats, and he expressed that quite loudly. Uh,
0: And that prompted White to leave his post and strike Edward
1: with his musket.
0: At which point, the crowd, which had already started to gather in response to all of this yelling in the street, started heckling and taunting White. And he returned to his post, loaded his weapon, and called for the main guard.
1: At roughly the same time, there were crowds having similar altercations with the British at other points nearby in Boston. And there was a lot of hurling of insults and snowballs at the uniformed troops. Someone also rang a fire bell, which prompted even more people to come out into the streets. And this whole giant crowd started to converge on the customs house.
0: John Adams later called this crowd, quote, a motley rabble of saucy boys, Negroes, and mulattoes, Irish teagues, and outlandish jacktars.
1: It was kind of rowdy. Take that as you will. (laughs) (laughs) In all this commotion, Captain Thomas Preston heard that people were planning to carry White off from his post and murder him. And perhaps while they were at it, they were also going to rob the customs house. So he decided to intervene, and he brought seven men from the 29th Regiment to back him up.
0: At that point, the crowd had started throwing snowballs, which sounds not so terrible, but then also sticks, rocks, oyster shells, ouch, and whatever else was at hand. The soldiers arranged themselves in a kind of half circle facing out to the crowd. So we're leaning on unreliable,
1: almost 250-year-old eyewitness testimony here, so it's a little unclear exactly who did what to cause the first shot to be fired. We do know that a man named Crispus Attucks who was carrying a club, approached the soldiers and grabbed one of their bayonets and that soldier Hugh Montgomery was knocked down. When Montgomery got up, he fired his musket kind of at the general direction of the crowd and he shouted for others to fire. They did, even as Captain Preston was yelling orders for them to hold their fire.
0: And then uh, there was general chaos and shooting and sort of a big mass the melee. Melee is a perfect word. Refray. And that went on with some confusion until the dust settled. Three men died
1: at the scene. These were Crispus Addicts, Samuel Gray, and James Caldwell. Uh, Crispus Attucks was the son of an African man and a Native American woman. he was the first to fall after being shot twice in the chest. He has since become known as the revolution's first hero, and we don't really know much about his life before the massacre, except that he had escaped from slavery and found work as a whaler and a rope maker.
0: In addition to the fatalities, eight other people were injured, and Samuel Maverick and Patrick Carr ended up dying of their injuries later.
1: That brings the death toll of the Boston massacre to five. Mm-hmm. A warrant was issued for the arrest of Captain Preston a little after midnight that night. Pretty much the only way they were able to get the crowd to go back about their business was to reassure them that, yes, there would be an investigation and that these men would see justice done. So, in response to the killings, the people of Boston demanded that the soldiers who had participated in the shooting, along with their captain, be tried for murder. Captain Preston and his eight soldiers were indicted on March 13th, although the trial was put off for several months to allow the town's passions to cool down, and they all remained in jail in, interim, in the interim.
0: Preston wrote letters from his jail cell, and some of them were published in the Boston papers, and those that had been published expressed empathy for the citizens and those who had fallen while on the other hand, a letter that was published back in England was basically pretty scathing. Uh, And naturally, word got back to the colonies about that one, uh, and that did not really help his case. Nope. He was kind of talking out of both sides of his mouth. (laughs) The citizens of Boston also demanded that the British troops be
1: removed, and eventually, fearing further retaliation, acting Governor Thomas Hutchinson and Colonel Dalrymple, who was in charge of the unit's, had the troops removed to Castle William, which is on an island three miles out in Boston Harbor.
0: Captain Preston and the soldiers were arraigned on September 7th, and they all pled not guilty.
1: Captain Preston was tried for murder in October of 1770 separately from the other soldiers. The soldiers had requested that they all be tried together. Their defense was that they were just following orders, and Preston's defense was that he had not actually given an order to fire, So the soldiers were really understandably afraid that if Preston was tried first and then found guilty, that they would automatically be guilty with no possible way to prove their innocence. Their request, though, was denied with no explanation.
0: And as you can imagine, they had a hard time finding legal representation in Boston. Uh, Most lawyers feared that they would never work again if they dared to defend these soldiers. And in the end, leading the defense for both the captain and his men was John Adams. Robert Akmuti and Hosiah Quincy Jr. helped defend the captain, and Quincy and Samson Salter-Blowers helped defend the soldiers. So there
1: was a transcription, presumably made, of Captain Preston's trial, and that has not survived until today, but we know the basics. Eyewitnesses for the defense insisted that Captain Preston had not ordered for anyone to fire. On the other hand, eyewitnesses for the prosecution insisted that he had Adams' defense relied on raising doubts about the testimony of the prosecution's witnesses.
0: And the captain's trial lasted from October 24th to October 30th, with the sequestered jury eventually finding him not guilty.
1: This was a shock to many people. Yeah. The eight British soldiers were tried as well in November and December of 1770, and the trial was uh, officially known as Rex versus Weems et al., the transcript of this trial still exists today and their defense hinged on the idea that the soldiers were firing in self-defense.
0: Six of the soldiers were acquitted on the grounds that they were defending themselves. In John Adams' words, quote, if an assault was made to endanger their lives, the law is clear, they had a right to kill in their own defense. If it was not so severe as to endanger their lives, yet if they were assaulted at all, struck and abused by blows of any sort, by snowballs, oyster shells, cinders, clubs, or sticks of any kind, this was a provocation, for which the law reduces the offense of killing down to manslaughter in consideration of those passions in our nature which cannot be eradicated.
1: So while six of the soldiers were acquitted, two of them were indeed convicted of manslaughter, and at their sentencing they pled the benefit of clergy. Laws at the time basically allowed for clergy to receive more lenient sentencing, especially when it came to the death penalty. And this allowance had over many centuries come to apply to all kinds of people in all kinds of situations. So pleading the benefit of clergy reduced their sentence to having the letter M branded onto their thumbs. So they would be marked forever as manslaughter. On their thumbs. Yeah.
0: Uh, John Adams, as you can imagine, initially faced hostility for his role in the trials. But his defense of the soldiers was eventually viewed as something of an act of bravery. And then, of course, he became George Washington's vice president and then the second president of the United States. So it did not really taint his reputation as much as people had expected. In the
1: end, no. And in the... uh, uh, Today, it's become an example in law schools sometimes of of an example of when somebody has defended... uh, you know, a a clearly unpopular choice of someone to defend Mm -hmm. uh, in the interest of making sure that person got actual justice. Uh, John Adams later wrote this in his diary. The part that I took in defense of Captain Preston and the soldiers procured me anxiety and obloquy enough. It was, however, one of the most gallant, generous, manly, and disinterested actions of my whole life and one of the best pieces of service I ever rendered my country. Judgment of death against those soldiers would have been as foul a stain upon this country as the executions of the Quakers or witches
0: anciently. But the bigger impact of this massacre was its influence on the American Revolution. The dead became martyrs, and the incident raised a rallying cry for independence. And one of the many people stirring the pot was John Hancock, who had become a vocal opponent of the British after his sloop, the Liberty, was seized after its cargo of wine was unloaded without Hancock paying the duties on it. So he had not paid his taxes. No. And his ship was taken.
1: He objected to that idea. Paul Revere created an engraving which shows a line of British soldiers in their red coats just firing indiscriminately at a huge crowd of people. It ran under the name The Bloody Massacre Perpetrated in King Street, Boston.
0: Samuel Adams also contributed to the massacre moniker, writing letters in the Boston Gazette as well as helping to pen, quote, a short narrative of the horrid massacre in Boston perpetrated on the evening of the 5th day of March, 1770 by soldiers of the 29th Regiment, with which the 14th Regiment were then quartered there with some observations on the state of things prior to that catastrophe also known as A Short Narrative of the Horrid Massacre in Boston. Uh, Because that first title is a little wordy. Extremely long. (laughs) The British counterpart to this pamphlet was set, was the set of depositions we read from earlier. And that was titled A Fair Account of the Late Unhappy Disturbance at Boston in New England.
1: Yes, Perspective
0: changes everything.
1: They did not call this the Boston Massacre in Britain. They called it, like, the incident in Boston. Yeah. Uh, it, it was not referred to as a massacre at all. And basically the reason why we in the United States call it a massacre is because uh, Paul Revere and Samuel Adams were basically acting like spin doctors.
0: Yeah, they were propagandizing the event.
1: Yes. If, if you were angry about spin in the news. It's not new. It is absolutely not a new thing mm. at all. And one of the things that was just the, the best... The best part of researching this episode is the fact that most of these pamphlets still exist, and yeah, you can look them up, and you can see the blindingly different interpretations of what happened. Uh,
0: For a number of years after uh, March fifth was a day of remembrance in Massachusetts. The site of the massacre is a spot on the Freedom Trail that still exists, uh, and a memorial to Crispus Attucks was erected in Boston Commons in eighteen eighty eight over the opposition of historical organizations that viewed him as a villain, not a hero.
1: Yeah, it's... Th- because the, you know, the, the the records of that day are so clouded and fuzzy, mm-hmm. uh, there are people who see Crispus Attucks as, like, the first real patriot dying in the Revolution. Like, he was the person that... Uh, stood
0: up, that up, to that stood up to the red Stood
1: up to the Redcoats. You could really look at the same accounts and more arrive at the idea that... Uh, that he was basically the the guy that threw a first punch, and in a bar fight, yeah, and in that bar fight, throwing the first punch hit a cop, like <laughs> right. The you could really look at it either way, um, but but he does wind up with with also a notable place as being uh, one of the first African Americans to have played a big role, uh, in that way in the revolution. So there are lots of layers there.
0: And luckily, you can do plenty of uh, looking around at a lot of this stuff, as Tracy mentioned just a moment ago. The Massachusetts Historical Society has a bunch of these documents, uh, all grouped together in one easy-to-find place. And they're kind of hilarious, not only because of the obvious slant and spinning that's going on, depending on who's writing, but also because of, as Tracy says, the long S's that looks like that look like F's. Yes. And we'll link you to that uh, in the show notes.
1: We will. There's also the the Bostonian Society has made a game that is meant for elementary and middle school students that's all about investigating the massacre, uh, which is pretty fun. I did not play all the way through it, but it, it basically is like, hey, you're an investigator. You got to figure out what happened at this massacre.
0: That's very fun.
1: It's quite fun.
0: And a cool way to engage kids and adults, frankly, about uh,
1: learning about history. Yeah, I would every
0: historical event had one of those, that would be so awesome.
1: I uh, I really I wanted to to do the whole thing, but I really, really, really needed to finish my notes <laughs> so that I could go home. So yes, the Boston Massacre, I polled some random people uh, as I as I got into this story. Yeah. And I was like, hey how many how many people do you think got killed at the Boston Massacre? Hundreds. Well, nobody said hundreds, but most people came up with a number that was more than 20. Yeah. And when I said five, they were like, really? Yeah. So I don't want to belittle the fact that five human beings lost their lives. Like, that's not the point. The point is more that massacre is a great big bloody word. Yeah. And what happened was much more like a street brawl with casualties. Yeah.
0: It was an incident that went poorly, but it was not kind of the big, huge I mean it it probably took moments. Yes. And was not quite the event that the word massacre conjures in most people's mind.
1: Right, right.